Welcome to Bad Reads, a podcast all about reading, with Kira and Simon. So Simon, I want to start today's episode by posing you a question. Hmm. How do you find books to read? Uh, I guess I go to a bookshop and have a look, and if I like a book I buy it, I suppose. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? But it's something that I kind of agonize over, and I think a lot of people do. It's actually really hard to find a good book to read. There are so many, so many choices. And this is the thing, actually, that I realise that some years or some periods I go through, and I think, gosh, I'm really enjoying reading at the moment. Like, I'm great at reading. And then other times I pick up a book and I just, I don't want to go back to it. It's a real slog to get through. Yes. And the difference is whether I'm reading books that I like, and I'm finding more and more books that I like to read, or whether I've got one or a group of books that is just completely uninspiring and a real sludge to get through. Yes, it always seems to go in a chain too, doesn't it? You pick up one bad book that you're not enjoying, and it leads to another, and sometimes you can go for a few months and think, do I even enjoy reading anymore? What am I doing this for? And then all it takes is one good book and kind of get back on track. But there's often that fear... And I think, actually, you've touched on something there, that when I find a particular writer or a particular style of book that I like, I then go and read more and more like that. I I guess I'm a little bit of an obsessive completionist, and I sometimes find myself finding a new writer and then trying to read every single thing they've written, even the kind of old out-of-print books or the ones they did before they were famous that aren't considered to be their best works. I love that idea. In practice, I think I'm the complete opposite, because when I really love a book, I instantly become afraid that the author won't have been able to do anything anywhere near as good again, and I'll only be disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of put it in this perfect box, and then I want nothing else to do with them. (laughs) And of course, it only takes a few examples where you go back to an author that you've loved, and you get burned by not liking the book as much, or even disliking the book. And then you go, yep, well, that proves it. (laughs) I've got to, I've got to move on. I think I have a thing, actually, where, and I have this with TV shows as well, where I carry on watching them or carry on reading a writer's works, even after I've stopped enjoying them, just because I have this memory of a time when I did enjoy them. And I kind of want to recreate that to desperately reading their new works. (laughs) So you punish yourself by sticking with it. (laughs) I'm very bad at abandoning books, actually. Um, Once I start reading them, I know you've given me this advice before, actually, of give up with books you aren't getting on, but I find it so hard. Yes, I'm the biggest advocate for abandoning books, which sounds terrible, but it's so satisfying just putting it down. And you could even kid yourself that you'll come back to it at another time. I do that a lot. I think it's just not the right time or the right place for me. I'm not in the right mood. I'll come back to it. Or sometimes I just slam the book shut and throw it across the room. Um, actually, that's only happened once. <laughs> but it deserved it. He deserved it. <laughs> but that's, you've made a good point there, actually, that sometimes the books that I'm looking for at a particular time are very specific to what's happening in my life or the season or how I'm feeling. And so maybe sometimes I'll go hunting for books that reflect something that I'm currently feeling. Yep. I've definitely got, I think I bought a book on your recommendation. 
might have been someone else's, we'll see. <laughs> I'll test my memory. It's uh, Italo Calvino, am I saying that right? Yes. Yes, that was my recommendation. If on a winter's night, a traveller. That's it, yes. So you recommended this to me, and I bought it, meaning to read it when it was winter, and then the season passed, and ever since then, I keep looking at it on my shelf, going, I'm just waiting till it gets cold again, <laughs> and then I will read this book. And that's probably, it, maybe it has nothing to do, it's not a seasonal read at all, I don't know, but in my mind, that's when I'm going to read it. It's got it in the title. <laughs> I don't think it is a seasonal book, actually. <laughs> actually, a much better summer read. <laughs> so that, that book, I'd be interested to know what you think of it, actually, because I read that at university. Uh, like you, I did English literature at university, which nearly destroyed my interest in books. And in the three years that I was there, hundreds of books I must have read in that time, there were two books that I read that afterwards I thought to myself, I would carry on reading books like this and buy this author for pleasure and that was one of them <laughs> what was the other one <laughs> the other one was um a collection of plays by martin crimp that i liked so much that i immediately i read it in typical fashion very on brand for me i immediately went out and bought all the other <laughs> collections of his works just off the strength of one play that's incredible i don't remember having i know a lot of people have that experience after finishing the literature degree I didn't have that. I kind of went into the opposite, maybe trying to prove something to myself. And I went out and bought a Roland Barthes reader, you know, a really chunky, very academic <laughs> book, which naturally <laughs> I have not read at all because it just hit me a few months later. <laughs> Absolute fatigue. I don't have to read this anymore. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have to read this anymore. I actually have no mental energy for this. I mean, trying to read Roland Barthes at the same time as doing job searches and writing your CV as a graduate, it's not going to happen. In my head, after my degree, it took me a long time to recover the joy of reading. But actually, I found my library card the other day, my Ealing library card. And it's made me remember that when I moved to London, the first thing I did was go and sign up at the library. And that was in August. Oh. And I finished the degree in June, so it was only two months that <laughs> I was up on reading. How much do you think that was about the books and how much a desire to be in a more familiar space, the space of the library? I think that during university, you don't really... I mean, you suppose you do hunt for books, but they're usually specifically for the purpose of completing an essay. And after university, I had this opportunity again to hunt for books that I wanted to mm -hmm. for my own purposes, rather than because I had to complete an essay on Thursday. And suddenly I had this commute that I had to do every day, which was new. Yeah. And the library was a cheap yep. way of getting books to fill the to fill the commute time. <laughs> so it was a very practical decision. It was, yeah. And I... I um, returning to your original question, I used to go to the library and look through the shelves and pick the book there that I most wanted to read of the books that was there. Um, I had a set of books yeah. that I wanted to read as well that I could have got from Waterstones downstairs, but I was an impoverished entry-level worker and couldn't afford those big hardbacks. So <laughs> I would flip through the um, library shelves and think, oh, I was thinking I wanted to read something by Toby Litt. I know he's got a new book out, but instead I'll read this seven-year-old book of his that the library happens to have in stock. Yes, it's quite a nice way to get through someone's backlist, actually. Because a lot of libraries are decent at getting new books, but 
they've only got a small space usually and they have to be very limited in their selection so it is quite a nice way even to get out of that crunch of thinking what's new what's current what's everyone else reading there's a sense of going into a public library and that the constraints of it can be pretty satisfying it meant that i read books that i don't think i would have ever picked up in a bookshop but because they were there i was like oh i have been meaning to read that actually i read a lot of philip roth i I read a lot of philip roth in my 20s Mm. (laughs) he's one of those authors i think actually i did read like you then i continued to read him so i did actually delve into philip roth i think until i hit one that i didn't enjoy so much or i felt like okay i've done him that's enough you have a sort of one (laughs) strike in your out policy when it comes to that (laughs) catalogue Maybe I've just got worse, because actually I also used to delve in, you know, Paul Auster. I read quite a few of his books. Yes, and, I was um, reading Paul Auster at the same time I was reading Philip yeah. Roth. <laughs> Jonathan Franzen is another yeah. one. And actually all of this, um, all of that reading got me to the point of recognising that I had this sort of literary standard which had been drilled into me, and it was all these kind of great American white uh, 20th and 21st century writers um, and actually I wasn't reading any women so it, that was a wonderful turning point I mean I still still love those authors yeah, I think they're fantastic but uh, yeah there's only so much you can handle and I think that kind of woke me up to the fact that we read what we're told to read often you know throughout school mm. We read the books that our teachers tell us to read, and maybe we do a bit of reading on the side too, but there's still this, you get very much in a, like in a certain vein of, like, these are the good books, and I'll read the good books, and you're not very critical about what that actually means. And it's very easy to carry that on into adulthood of, these are the safe, good literary writers whose work I will enjoy, and you look down on more commercial fiction or humorous writing or you don't actually realize that you're not reading books by women or books by anyone who isn't American or British or white American or white British. So I quite like the self-consciousness that you can develop around reading and the directions that takes you. Yeah, it's it's funny that, isn't it, actually, how when you are inspired by similar writers or you read one writer and think oh I like this like the sort of echo chamber of Twitter or Facebook you can trap yourself into that a sort of literary version of it where you just read more and more similar people absolutely yeah and funnily enough having had my mid-20s realization that, that I was extremely pale and male in my reading habits I've now probably swung not too much the other way because there are so many great women writers still for me to uncover and still many years of school to make up for but I definitely read mainly women like a vast majority women and I think probably that comes from that sort of echo chamber you're talking about. I noticed that something similar happened to me actually in the last two years almost all of the books I've enjoyed reading have been by women it's not been conscious at all it's been entirely accidental Mm. but just increasing I've every route that I followed has led to another woman who's writing exactly the sort of thing I wanted to read and I wonder how much of that is that I've left one echo chamber and entered another echo chamber yeah or whether (laughs) or whether it is just that I have now got tired of the great sort of patriarchal white men who (laughs) write their literary sentences and look down on us 
Yeah, and maybe it's a kind of an age or stage of life thing too that, um, yeah, maybe there's there's a slight gravity towards, or that women writers gravitate more towards different styles of writing and, and male writers likewise. I mean, obviously in a very general sense, not all writers will do that, but and maybe those just appeal to you at different phases of your life. There's definitely something to that, actually, because I've recently got into sort of fragmentary novels. Um, so sort of Jenny Offal wrote some, and then that started me down a route of all of these. Mm. And a lot of the writers who write fragmentary novels seem to be women. There are some men as well. has also led me into sort of fragmentary sort of non-fiction as well, which also seems to be <laughs> by women. I wonder why that is. Yeah, I... I wouldn't want to make a sort of broad sexist generalisation about it. Yes, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? There's uh, There are lots of books that if you stripped out any information about the author, obviously you wouldn't be able to tell um, what sex the writer is. Well, one, one book that I read recently enjoyed a lot is called 24 for 3, which is by Jenny Walker, and it's about a woman who's having an affair with uh, a man who's really into cricket, but it turns out Jenny Walker is a pseudonym and it's actually by a man. Mm. And when I was reading it, there was something slightly off about it, um, which I couldn't quite put my finger on. <laughs> and funny enough, I'm reading Nick Hornby's latest book at the moment, which is called Just Like You. One of the narrators of that is a woman. And I I like Nick Hornby a lot. Um, but as I've got older and perhaps as I've read more women, I real I know now... <laughs> <laughs> He's not very good at doing a woman's voice in his books. That's funny, isn't it? Because certainly a lot of female readers will have that experience. It's interesting you, through your own reading, picking up on that. And I wonder how often male readers find that in reverse. You know, how many women kind of struggle at, at doing a male character. I don't know if there is the same cliché of... Uh, you know, <laughs> she looked at herself in the mirror, her taut, tight breasts bulging against her top. I don't know if it's the equivalent for men. <laughs> there was a wonderful Twitter thread um, a year, actually, maybe it was longer than that ago. Of She boobed breastily down the stairs. <laughs> yeah, women writing themselves as a male writer would. It's just <laughs> a fantastic piss take. <laughs> you do still come across some really... Uh, outrageous character descriptions are really lazy yeah or even just yeah kind of outrageous assumptions about what the character would be thinking yeah um, or how they'd react the problem i found with hornby's one actually is which is it's a fun book actually it's about a 42 year old woman who's dating a 22 year old man and her thoughts about sex in this seem to me very much to be what a 42-year-old man dating a 22-year-old woman might be thinking about sex, not the other way around. <laughs> yeah, maybe he's just tried to do too straightforward a swap. I have to admit, thinking of books that I'm drawn to and why I read the books that I read, if it's not the author and it's not a book that I've sort of discovered related to another author, I am quite partial to a good cover. Yes, covers, I mean, you know, that's it. There's a great art to designing book covers and not necessarily ones that just look good but ones that look right you know that'll catch your eye whether it's on a bookshop table or library shelf or on a little thumbnail online 
something that catches your eye, even if it's ugly, but it just does so in the right way. And it uses, you know, you want it to use the right sort of visual language. So choices of font and color and all of those things can influence instantly whether you think it's a novel or nonfiction, whether you recognize it as being in a particular genre. Yeah. I think everyone gets taken in by a cover. There's a particular style of cover that gets me all the time at the moment. And I see them, I'm like, oh, this must be a book for me. Because this cover is designed in a way I like. It's, you know, it's a flat, bold colour with a sort of object cropped out in the middle of it. This seems like it would appeal to me. <laughs> what books do you, have you seen recently that have that cover? There was one, I saw an advert on a tube for the other day, at being in prison. It's called A Bit of a Stretch. And it was a, it was a blank yellow background with a sort of porridge bowl in the middle. And I was... Before I even read what it was about, I was like, oh, this seems like this would interest me. <laughs> yep, I know what you mean. There's also, I've noticed various typeface trends that come and go in publishing. And like you see it in people's releases, but sometimes you also see it hilariously like in a bookshop window and you just see the same uh, typeface or the same layout again and again and again. Yeah. Um, and it kind of signifies like, here we are, we're a serious literary novel, or maybe even the publisher trying to get into a, a different space. I read Normal People, which I liked a lot. And then there was another book called Ordinary People that had a very, very similar cover design, um, which I read and also quite liked. <laughs> but I couldn't help thinking that it was designed to appeal to people who like normal people. You like this book that had a yellow cover with some simplistic shapes on the front. Maybe you would like this other book with people <laughs> in the title with a yellow cover and simplistic shape on the front. <laughs> the thing is, it could have been accidental or, yeah, it could have been completely deliberate. Mm. I often work with authors who will say, oh, I'm not really sure about that colour because these books have got that colour or it looks a little too similar to this other book, which is kind of a competitor. And But actually, that's exactly what you want because it has salience for people. Mm. And they already, even if they don't consciously recognise it, they subconsciously go, oh, that's familiar. Or, oh, that looks like something that I like. And if you can harness that. Yeah. There's a bit in the New Yorker yesterday um, about covers and they were, they were talking to some designers and one of them said that as a, when you're designing covers you're usually either defamiliarizing the familiar or making the unfamiliar seem inviting <laughs> which I thought was a really nice way of, of putting it oh I like that and then he said book designers have a mandate serve the reader honor the author don't impose a bunch of showy distractive moves I kind of thought that was quite interesting actually the idea of the cover is there for the reader, but is sort of in honour of the author as well. Absolutely, yeah. You always want to make sure that the author loves their cover, but not um, at the expense of a reader picking it up. Yeah. Sometimes that's quite a tricky balance. And even sometimes you can create a cover which really tells people what the book is about, it really feels like it matches the content of the book. And that might not be as successful at catching readers as something which isn't as true to the inside of the book. Yeah. That's kind of a tricky decision to make. I've been caught out by that as, as a book buyer occasionally. <laughs> I bought a book which had this really like straightforward business slash psychology type of cover treatment. And I bought it and I got it home and I started reading and it was just full of Freudian 
nonsense in my <laughs> opinion and I was horrified but also yeah well done job well done because they pulled in a lot more readers with a cover that was super commercial yeah it's it's and it's all unconscious as well you look at that cover and you get a feel of what it's going to be about just automatically without even thinking to yourself oh because this has got these sort of geometric designs on it they must be therefore more straightforward yeah. and it's not going to have dream analysis in it <laughs> Exactly. You know, or you think you know what the, the tone of voice mm. will be. The reason I was reading The New Yorker on Monday is because I've been trying to read The New Yorker every week this year. It's sort of been a lockdown activity, which is, The New Yorker is great, don't get me wrong, but there are some times when it is just a bit <laughs> like eating your greens. Like when I'm, when I'm kind of 4,000 words through a 9,000 word article about the first female Bolivian miner, I kind of think to myself, oh God, I'm not sure I could keep going through with this. But one of the things that's come from that is there are writers I've discovered in The New Yorker who have written absolutely delightful things. And then I've gone and looked them up and bought their books off the back of reading them in The New Yorker. So that's been quite a, a bountiful seam of new writers for me. Yeah. But do you have time to read their books if you're reading The New Yorker cover to cover? <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that as well. I, I have to be honest, I skip sometimes. There's, there are sometimes articles, no matter how well written they are, that are too worthy for me. <laughs> I don't know if I should say this, but I have also been attempting to eat my greens with the London Review of Books which I've subscribed to since about this time last year. Mm. But now it's just, there's a little stack of probably a few months worth of unread ones because, like, yeah, I ground to a halt. Someone I discovered in that who have subsequently gone and looked at their other works was Patricia Lockwood mm. and then enjoyed her piece in there. She wrote a bit, a diary piece about her experience catching coronavirus that was so good that I immediately went out and uh, started looking for more of her works. Interesting. So rather than buying any of the books they review, going based on the writers doing the reviews. Yeah. I think that's probably sensible because often the pieces tell you as much about the writer of the review, if not more so than they do about the books. Yeah. How else have you found books to read? And it sounds like you've being quite driven to go and hunt out the the gaps in your literary diet. Yeah, I like that, yes. Well, so that first happened. I kind of, earlier maybe it sounded as though I was giving myself credit for recognising my shortcomings. What actually happened was um, early on in my publishing job hunting, I went for an interview with a literary agency and both of the agents there focused on women's commercial fiction, let's call it that, um, even though it's a ridiculous and problematic genre in and of itself. It can sort of overlap with romance, but it isn't uh, exclusively that, and it's also just, you know, fiction. <laughs> if if there was a male equivalent, Nick Hornby would be in men's commercial fiction, you know. Ladlit. <laughs> Ladlit. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, a chiclet, there's... That's true, how much in the Venn diagram of chiclet and women's commercial fiction. It's probably a pretty big overlap. There I was, and I'd taken the book I was reading with me into interview, and they saw me when they came out to get me reading it, and it was uh, uh, John Lancaster, um, a Faber book. 
really enjoyable book and they asked me about it and then in the interview they started asking me more about my favorite books and I, you know at the time again out comes Franzen and Ulster hmm. and you know when you're sinking in quicksand and you don't you don't realize until you're right in it that you go oh yeah I'm not none of these books are by women I'm not reading women how didn't I notice this so that's what happened. I obviously did not get the job, um, but it sparked something perhaps even better for me, which was that I thought, okay, I got to hunt out the gaps. And then in the last few years, I've been doing that, I guess a bit more by genre of, I've been reading more young adult fiction, more sci-fi, been trying a bit more romance and crime. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes I think, ah, just this genre isn't for me or this particular kind of it isn't for me. But I think it's nice to have that balance because it kind of engages with like, why do we read? And the answer is for tons of different reasons. And so it makes sense to read different things that will suit your different moods rather than thinking that you have to read the same thing again and again. And it has to be only the books that other people are talking about this year, the award-winning books or, you know, things that your university professors might like look over your shoulder and go, wow, well done, Kira, still reading that. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I'm kind of branching out there. And then of course, like I mentioned, I think a lot of people have realized this year just how white publishing is, how white its output um, in particular. And uh, I'm trying to read and be more conscious of my reading habits and read more broadly because I think you know you can't rely on going into a shop or going on other people's recommendations and getting a, a diversity of reading you just I just don't think you will so you know it's very easy to get pulled into a monoculture I, I admire the proactiveness there it's way better than me who I fall into that trap of just wanting more and more of the same every time I read something I want more like it. <laughs> There's a um, bit in Save the Cat, which is this book about screenwriting, and he describes how when he was pitching a film once, one of the movie execs said, what we want is we want things that are the same but different. <laughs> and I can't help thinking what I'm looking for when I'm reading, painful as this is for me to say, is I'm just looking for the same thing but different every time. <laughs> but gradually... I think what happens is, as those slight differences move out, it moves me into different spaces entirely organically. Yeah. And so I find myself now somewhere quite different than where I started, but I, I've been dragged kicking and screaming for those changes rather than proactively hunting them out. Well, you've been sort of just gradually increasing the temperature <laughs> without yes. noticing. Yes. I'm, I'm boiling the frog. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think too, though, there's something to be said for reading is important in terms of where you spend your money and how we create and advance a culture but it's also individually important it's got to give something back to you and actually enjoying reading finding something that you like and getting into that especially this year I think there's a lot to be said for that too yeah I think I've done a lot more reading this year than I have any other year actually in fact I mean I know people are saying They've completed Netflix and <laughs> Disney Plus and Amazon Prime. But I've I've barely watched TV, actually. I found myself going towards books more. Wow. Well, 
you know, I've said it many times, but you're a much better reader than I am. <laughs> I think like a lot of publishers, I love TV. <laughs> <laughs> Occasionally I'll meet up with an agent or another editor and, you know, usually they just want to tell you about all the books they're reading and you have a lovely bookish chat and then occasionally you meet up with somebody who says, oh, I just watch TV now. <laughs> and it's so refreshing. <laughs> yes, we can all be honest. <laughs> we just watch TV. No, it's not quite true, but um, it can certainly be hard to switch off the critical part of your brain. I should try audiobooks. I briefly got into audiobooks this year. I used to really, really be into them years ago, but I find now, for some reason, I just start doing something else when I'm listening to them and tune out. Like, I'll just open up Twitter and start browsing that and I'll stop listening to them. It's, it's awful. Yeah, they do allow for multitasking, mm. which is, it's the death knell for actually enjoying and sticking with the story. Yeah, yeah. Do you pay any attention to awards? What books have won awards? Well... Yes and no. And <laughs> awards do such great things, I think, for supporting writers and for building enthusiasm around books and just building enthusiasm around reading. They're great for bookshops, getting people into them. Uh, but all that said, I tend to be let down when I actually do read um, either winners or shortlisted books. And I think that just comes down to both expectation and that thing we were saying of finding books at the right time. And in terms of expectations, it just sets them really high. And that's a hard way to come into a book. I think for some people, they go, great, I'm going to enjoy this. And so they enjoy it. I think, okay, this has won an award. It's got a really high bar to leap over. And then naturally... Let's see if you deserve that award after <laughs> yeah, all. exactly. I'm going to test you. Are you going to live up to this award? Yeah, and then then they, I often find that they don't. But I'm, in a, I'm happy to say that I'm in a minority there. Obviously, most people tend to love award-winning books. I think, I think I'm exactly the same. I think if, you, if I see the book a shortlist, or the book a longlist, or even the book a winner, I'm like, ugh. But if I read a book and enjoy it, and then subsequently find out it's won an award, I'm like, oh, it's won an award. Yeah, obviously I would do. It works in the wrong way for me. <laughs> yeah, I think we're just contrarians. We try and prove something wrong. Well, I do find myself often reading reviews of books after I've read them. So I think, oh, I read that. Let's, let's see what this reviewer thinks. See if they're <laughs> right or not. I find similarly, and I don't know if you go based on this, but I actually get really annoyed by the pull quotes or endorsements that they have on the front of books or sometimes the back and in one horrifying case even on the spine of a book oh god oh yeah that was um i won't name and shame but it, as well as quotes on the front it has two quotes on the spine because it's a pretty chunky book but you know it's from the newspapers and from other authors they're always superlative obviously because you wouldn't choose anything else but so it's almost impossible to to make a decision based on that. And yet you're invited to because it's like, look, look how many people have thought this was really great. Or the worst when the quote says, laugh out loud funny, and it never is. I have never laughed out loud at a book that was reviewed or quoted as being laugh out loud funny. <laughs> you said you are going to read the funniest book of the 20th century. <laughs> it's on your list now. That's on my list now. It's not. I'm not going to laugh once. I'm sure. 
<laughs> this is uh, this is Cold Comfort Farm, Stella Gibbons' book that's that's been rated the funniest book of the twentieth century. <laughs> that's right. Um, this is actually from a great podcast, uh, backlisted from an episode about Barbara Pym's Excellent Women, which I have just ordered, actually, um, that and Cold Comfort Farm. Kind of a rare way of finding books to read for me, but that was a fantastic episode, and we'll just see. I'm not setting my expectations high, though. I've been burned before, and now I know if I find it moderately amusing, I will be happy. If you, if you get one smile out of it, then that will be, <laughs> that will be already exceeding the laugh out loud. <laughs> Barometer. <laughs> I often get taken in by blurbs by the writer's name more than what they say. I sort of ignore what they say because they're all going to say yeah. this is the best book ever written. Um, this writer is the, the greatest living writer <laughs> writing in this genre right now. But but who they get to blurb it, I think, oh, if they've asked that person to blurb it and I like that person, then I probably like this book. <laughs> yeah, I think that probably is more effective. Do you pay much attention to recommendations from friends? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think I do. I probably am not as cognizant of where my next reads come from, but I think the answer is that they do come a lot from discussions with people. Certainly, a lot of my non-fiction reading comes from authors that I work with because they'll mention something in their book or when we're having a conversation about it, they'll say, oh, I kind of see it as being like X or I was really inspired by this book. And so I think, oh, I need to know more about that. So a lot of my reading, and particularly the books that I tend to dip in and out of um, that are nonfiction, come from authors. And sometimes fiction too, pardon me, just because sometimes I read fiction based on my author's recommendations where we've got into a good chat because, you know, we tend to talk about books with authors. In terms of friends, I think it mainly comes from my sister who also works in publishing and she's great for getting me really diverse reading suggestions in terms of genre. Uh, she works in foreign rights and so she represents a list that includes crime writers and young adults and well, the whole gamut of fiction and non-fiction. So if I feel like testing myself and going out of my comfort zone, I often ask her for a recommendation. And she's both good at giving recommendations, but she's also good at receiving lukewarm reviews. She's not one of those people who gets very offended if you haven't enjoyed the book that she suggested, which is nice. Yeah, that's nice. Otherwise you... Otherwise you have to pretend that you liked it afterwards, <laughs> not to destroy the relationship. Yes. Or, in my case, pretend that you've continued reading it, yeah. <laughs> right? Because, as we've established, <laughs> I don't continue with things that I'm not enjoying. So I have, on occasion, had to pretend to have completed a book. It gets good around page 400, though. <laughs> it really picks up. Just <laughs> at the point where they should have cut it off. <laughs> How about you, I um, I take recommendations from friends. If it's something that someone really, really likes, I take it quite seriously and usually go out and read it because I think, well, I like this person and this book seems to be important to that person, so they must have seen something in it. Yes, those formative books. Yeah. Even sometimes like struggling all the way through a book that I don't like at all, just almost to sort of work out what it was that the other person saw in it. Mm. 
rather than actually taking any pleasure in it at all at that point. So this is where I come into real difficulty as a recommender, because the books that I have most loved and recommended to people have by and large gone down like a lead balloon. <laughs> and I feel badly for the people I recommended the book to, and they obviously feel terrible. Sometimes, hilariously in my mum's case, I had recommended her The Corrections. Jonathan Franzen. I read that off your recommendation, I think. Did you? Yeah, I did. Okay, well, we'll start with my mum's reaction and then hopefully I I did better with you <laughs> because my mum read it and then, I can't, I can't remember her exact words, but she essentially suggested that her opinion of me had changed because I had enjoyed this book. <laughs> she got along with it so badly that it made her sort of doubt who I was as a person. <laughs> your, your share of the inheritance has slightly decreased as a result of this recommendation. I've been cut off. <laughs> I was doing badly too because I'd also recommended her The Fountainhead um, by Ayn Rand. Oh God. Which, which I know is like as... It's not a hill I'm going to die on. I read it as like a 13-year-old <laughs> and obviously read a very different book to the one that most people read there. But anyway, so she was she was right to be doubtful. Um. <laughs> it's funny actually, isn't it, when you come across a book that is new to you, or maybe certainly if you're younger, where it actually stands for something and you're unaware that it stands for that. And you read it naively. Yeah, that was absolutely the case. I might go back to The Fountainhead so I can talk about this properly. It was the first time that I remember reading about architecture. And the way that she writes has felt really modern and unusual to me and exciting. And of course, all of her political Mm. philosophy just washed over (laughs) me uh, completely. And I didn't even catch at the time that the reason I read it was for an essay competition. And it wasn't, it was part of, you know, my school promoted it, but it was put on by the Ayn Rand Foundation. So completely devious (laughs) motivations on their part. And I remember as, you know, a young high school student being so annoyed that I didn't win this essay competition. (laughs) But... Looking back, obviously not, because they were hoping someone would say something nice and politically conservative, and I probably prattle down about architecture. <laughs> <laughs> I've been um, I've been burnt twice by on film recommendations. Uh, entirely my own fault. This is no fault of the recommendation at all. Once recently with a recommendation where someone was talking about the film um, Sometimes Always Never. I haven't heard of this. Uh, it features Bill Nye and it's a sort of light comedy, I think, sort of comedy drama. And the title comes from Bill Nye pointing at the three buttons on a jacket and saying, sometimes button the top button, always button the middle button, never button the bottom button. Anyway, I went and searched for this film and came across the film, which in my head was the same film, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, <laughs> which I was like, oh yeah, I'm sure that's what it was. It was something like that. Anyway, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always is a sort of harrowing drama about domestic abuse. And the words come from a questionnaire around um, how often does interaction with your partner result in violence? Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. And I was watching this film thinking to myself, wow, really? I wonder when the light comedy's going to come in. 
it's only at the end that I realised I'd watched the wrong film. When's Bill Nye going to appear? I was like, I can't work out how he's going to be in this. It's like, maybe he's going to be the hilarious marriage counsellor. <laughs> Can you think of anything less appropriate? It had me in tears, which, given that what I thought I was sitting down to was a light sort of romp with Bill Nye, was not what I expected. And the other time this happened to me was... <laughs> This is a recommendation from you again, not your fault at all, entirely my fault. When you said to me once that one of your favourite films was uh, The Princess Bride. Bride. Yeah. And subsequently, because I hadn't really heard of it, my ignorance again here, I googled it. And <laughs> I know, I know where this is going. Accidentally <laughs> found The Princess Diaries. <laughs> What's The Princess Diaries? And towards the end, I was like, I can't believe this is Kira's favourite film. <laughs> Have you seen The Princess Bride since? I have seen okay. The Princess Bride. Did that yeah. redeem the recommendation? <laughs> it's, a, it's a nicely put together film. I wouldn't say it's one of my favourites, but I did enjoy watching it. It's got some fun parts to it. I mean, film recommendations, I think, are even harder than books because you often, in the case of that and so many 80s films, I watched them when I was at high school, you know, completely different person and you often watch them with friends or with someone else who's really into it and part of what you love is is the film obviously but it's also the experience of watching it and the feeling that you had and going back to some of them now is really difficult or painful even and I've recently rewatched Breakfast Club which is a film that I loved and I, so many people do, you know, a popular culture it's held up as just a paragon of 80s filmmaking. And it's really hard to watch now. The way that Molly Ringwald, the central character, is, um, her character is treated is horrible. She just gets hazed and questioned endlessly about her sex life and the camera at one point actually upskirts her. There's a shot where the camera zooms up her skirt, which is outrageous. And Molly Ringwald has, in later years, written super eloquently about the film and about her reflections on it because she doesn't defend it exactly. She has a really nicely balanced critical view of it where she kind of questions what John Hughes, the filmmaker, was doing while at the same time recognising just how incredible it was what he did, which was putting teenagers into films in a way that they hadn't been before. And you know, that kind of 80s set-in-a-day film was a product of John Hughes. She has a really nice balanced view of criticising a lot of his female characters and what he was doing with what he gave to cinema. But yeah, man, it's hard. It's hard going back and watching those, especially knowing how many people you've recommended them to who have presumably either ignored you or gone on to watch them and thought, what? (laughs) (laughs) This is that thing, isn't it, that the recommendations and and what we pick to read is also a point in time that we change what we want at different times. Yes. I remember recommending, I think it was The Road, Jack Kerouac to my sister, and also Franny and Zooey, which is one of J.D. Salinger's short stories, and was an absolute favourite of mine as a late teenager. But very much both of those books speak to people at that age, and once you kind of miss that reading opportunity, you can still get something from the books, but you kind of missed it. You missed a boat, haven't you? Yeah. And maybe for better or worse. 
<laughs> some of them, some of the things that I read as a teenager created really weird schema. <laughs> you know, really strange ways of looking at the world or looking at um, mental health or what it was to be a woman. Again, often written by men, so. <laughs> so it sounds like we've got a few ways of finding good books there and a few pitfalls yeah. to avoid as well. <laughs> Make sure that if someone recommends your book, you do read the book they recommend <laughs> and not one with a similar title. That's a, that's a good tip to begin with. That's a good start, yeah. And I think also making sure that you you don't have to take on a, a book recommendation, right? So making sure that it's something that you actually are going to want to spend some time with or that you spend time at the right point for you. Yeah. Right. I have a book on the go now, so I'm going to dive back right into that. It's, as we said earlier on, it's Nick Hornby's latest book, so I'm going to try and finish that off tonight. What are you reading right now, Kira? Excellent. I just finished an Agatha Christie book. It's one of her Miss Marple books called The Body in the Library. And this was actually a great way to find a book. I was at my partner's mum's house and just checking out her collection, seeing what was on the shelves. And this, I think, was one of her mother's books. So an, an edition of an Agatha Christie from the 1950s, wonderfully old-fashioned cover design and beautifully you know that I love the paperbacks that have aged and that brown tinged paper so I very cliched created a fire in the fireplace whipped out the Agatha Christie and um, absolutely tore through it and so I've done a Simon and I found another Miss Marple book on the shelf <laughs> and I've got that one up next and that's called Nemesis so much for joining us this week we hope you've enjoyed it if you have please check out our website badreads.co.uk where you can find out more about us social media and the show notes for today's episode